You're tuned into More Living with Jim Brogan, broadcast live from the Brogan Financial Studios at News Talk 98.7, where old-fashioned values, expert knowledge, and genuine understanding come together to give you the retirement straight talk you deserve. Jim's a former National Advisor of the Year recipient and a financial educator, and he's here today to talk about how you can live out the best years of your life. Jim and the Brogan Financial Team have been helping retirees and pre-retirees across the Southeast for over 20 years in their pursuit of financial independence. You can reach them during the week at 865-862-6800. So sit back, relax, and get ready to learn, because more living with Jim Brogan starts now. I'm your host, Jim Brogan. You're listening to News Talk 98.7 WOKI. And this is Heart Health Month. You know, heart disease has been the number one killer in America for men and women for the past 100 years. I think we kind of lose sight of that with some of the other things going on. Um, Now... Uh, one of the things that is good, I think, is that since the 1950s, back in the 1950s, one of every two people that passed away in the United States that died were from a heart attack. And now it's one out of every eight and a half people. So I think that's probably due in part to improved diagnosis and treatment options. Um, but, you know, every February we want to bring awareness to cardiac disease and focus on ways to prevent this leading cause of death. And it's really not not only here but in the, in the entire world. Our guest this morning is a good friend of the show, Dr. Jeff Johnson. Uh, Jeff is a cardiologist with the University of Cardiology, and he's a clinical assistant professor of cardiology at the University of Tennessee. Been on the show numerous times over the years, also a very, very dear personal friend. You won't find a doctor who cares for his patients more than Dr. Jeff Johnson. Good morning, Jeff. Welcome to More Living. It's great to have you on again. Good morning, Jim. It's good to be here, and thank you for that kind introduction. I appreciate you, as you know. Well, thank you so much. Um, Okay, so I mentioned, Jeff, there that February is Heart Month. Heart disease continues to be the number one cause of death nationwide. Now, I mentioned that one out of every eight or nine deaths nationwide is due to heart attack, but in Tennessee, one out of every four deaths is due to heart disease. So let's start with, Jeff, give us the definition of heart disease. In general, we define heart disease um, in three broad categories, um, valvular heart disease, uh, rhythm abnormalities, and then coronary artery disease. Often when people talk about heart disease, heart disease awareness month, Etc. They are talking about coronary artery disease, so that's kind of the strict definition, and then the loose gener- uh, the loose definition. Coronary artery disease is also kind of synonymous with heart disease. Is another way of saying it. So explain to us coronary artery disease. That, does that mean any blockage whatsoever in the arteries, any calcium in, anywhere? <clears throat> well, um, we can talk about that um, further. That's really um, a huge question in cardiology uh, this very day today. Um, the strict definition is uh, problems with the coronary arteries. As we all know, that the heart is a it's a muscle and it's supplied by three major arteries: one on the front, one on the back, and one on the side. They can have branches, and oxygen is delivered to the heart muscle by the blood that's in 
those arteries being delivered. And if there's a blockage problem or a constriction or whatever word you want to use, there's compromise in blood flow there. So your question, though, about is any calcium defined as coronary artery disease, that is actually a bit controversial because in today's world of medicine, we are getting more and more people who get routine CAT scans or CT scans, and often um, they may be looking for a pulmonary nodule or looking to make sure that there's not an ammonia if someone has an upper respiratory infection. And uh, the radiologist will comment there is calcification in the coronary arteries. And believe it or not, uh, this is increasing rapidly just because of the technology of the CT scanning being so good at detecting this calcium. This is an ever-increasing reason for a referral to a cardiology practice uh, for that uh, incidental finding that there's calcium in the coronary arteries. So it's not so much lifestyles make you know we're having it's a lot worse. It's more the technology has gotten so good now we can detect it so much easier and and earlier. I think that it's a little bit of both. Uh, I know you talked about um, some changes in the demographics of our heart disease over the past fifty to seventy years. Uh, as you know, and I'm sure we'll probably get into this. Uh, obesity and type two diabetes is uh, really at epidemic proportions in our country and around the world, and uh, that is why the uh, incidence of heart disease continues to skyrocket. I mean, in general, the calcification of the arteries and vascular disease is uh, partly a result of the aging process, but it's also partly a result of um, our lifestyles, uh, as you and I have talked about before. Yes, and we'll definitely dive into some of the lifestyle risks. Um, but believe it or not, I, I was reading, Jeff, an article that more than half of U.S. adults do not know that heart disease is the leading cause of death in America. And it's been that way, as I said, it's been the leading cause for 100 years. So despite all the great work that doctors and the American Heart Association do, why do you think so many Americans are still not as aware as maybe we should be of the consequences of heart disease? I think that, um, and this is just my opinion, I think that um, the emotional diagnoses, uh, for lack of a better way to describe them, probably get more attention. For example, uh, we all have either been uh, personally affected by or had people in our family or our circle of friends affected by cancer. And so cancer uh, often can be a devastating diagnosis, and then it's even brought more to the forefront with professional sports teams emphasizing cancer awareness month and things like that. Um, and I'm not disparaging that. I think that any amount of awareness is a good thing. And then the other thing is uh, what we dealt with in 2020 forward, um, you know, pandemics can be an emotional thing. Um, any type of death that's unexpected, I think, whether it be from COVID-19 infection or uh, a new diagnosis of cancer that's relatively uh, uh, not previously suspected, I think that it brings more of an emotional component to it. And I think heart disease in general, we do have sudden cardiac death, we do have sudden events, but in general, it's a long-term chronic process, and it just doesn't really get the attention 
um, that these other diseases do, and 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 I understand that, as I said. You know, that's interesting because uh, I think that's right. It is a you know, I'll often uh, say, I'm going to draw an analogy here, Jeff, but I often say that uh, inflation in retirement is like cholesterol. It kind of sneaks up on you. It's not a, it's not an immediate risk like losing a lot of money in the stock market, but you wake up in 10 or 12 years and you're like, where is my, where is my income gone? I can't pay for things. And I, I'm kind of exactly. drawing a parallel there because heart disease is kind of more like that, right? It just kind of – and, and cholesterol, of course, is one of those factors. Yes, yeah, I think that's a great analogy. Um, the, you know, according to I do want to before we get to our first break, I do want to just mention that the American Heart Association says that more than three hundred and fifty-six thousand out-of-hospital cardiac arrests happen annually, and almost ninety percent are fatal. So let's start with signs that you may be having a cardiac event or something that may be wrong with your heart, because it's not always as obvious as people think. It's not always as obvious as people think. We still have to mention that chest pain is the number one warning sign. Significant chest pain, a heaviness, a dullness, an uncomfortable sensation that keeps you from doing physically what you normally would otherwise be able to do. But then there are more subtle things such as, nausea and breaking out in sets for reasons that you just can't explain or extreme fatigue. I mean, an inability to push the push mower across the yard, whereas a month ago you could. Some relatively sudden change can also be a sign of underlying heart disease without the presence of chest pain. And so we try to educate our our patients and the, the population in general just to be aware of maybe, of course, chest pain, significant shortness of breath, a decline in activity tolerance, all of those things are things that really could be warning signs for heart disease. Yeah, I think it's very important to always be in tune to our bodies and how we feel and and get regular checkups and all those things. And actually, that is one of the things that I want to talk to Dr. Johnson about in our next segment is, you know, when and how often do you get your heart checked out? So stay with us. We'll talk more about heart disease with local cardiologist Dr. Jeff Johnson as you're listening to More Living with Jim Brogan here on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. Welcome back to News Talk 98.7's Brogan Financial Studios, where Jim Brogan is coming to you live with important news and advice to help you achieve your dream retirement. Get ready to learn and live. Here's your host, Jim Brogan. Welcome back. This is More Living here on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. I'm Jim Brogan. We're visiting with Dr. Jeff Johnson, a good friend of the show's over the years. He's a cardiologist at University Cardiology. We're talking about Heart Health Month. As heart disease uh, uh, continues to be the number one killer in America of men and women and has been for 100 years. Um, so, Jeff, how often should we have our heart evaluated, and when should we specifically begin having our heart evaluated? I personally think that if you have a strong family history of heart disease, uh, and I define a family history as um, a father who had an early cardiac event before the age of 45, a mother who had a cardiac event before the age of 55, I think it's reasonable to be screened in some fashion, and we can talk more about that, really in the late 20s, 30s, as you're stepping into, you know, what we call the true bona fide adult years. 
I think that if there's not a strong family history, sometime after that is not unreasonable to at least be seen by your primary care physician. Maybe there should be an EKG. Maybe there's some blood work to look at cholesterol and whatnot. I think that based on the risk factor profile, the earlier is the better. As you know, Jim, um, uh, studies tell us that we start to develop plaque and calcium in our coronary arteries as early as the teenage years. And so this, back to our point we were talking about earlier, this really is a long-term chronic process that uh, if the earlier we address it, uh, the better off we may be in the long run. So you mentioned screening. Um, what are some classic ways we can screen? I mean, you mentioned EKG. You mentioned blood work. I know you and I have talked in the past about calcium score. What can people be doing, even as they're younger, to do screening to see if they have any risk factors for cardiovascular disease? Well, the traditional risk factors uh, include high blood pressure, diabetes, high cholesterol, tobacco, um, I may have mentioned diabetes, and then, uh, as mentioned a minute ago, the family history. And so I think sitting down and talking to your primary care provider about those traditional risk factors is a great first start. I mean, I think um, blood pressure is a silent um, entity. In other words, we don't have symptoms from elevated blood pressure. So if you're sitting there in your doctor's office and your blood pressure is high, for example, 150 over 95 on a consistent basis, then there is some underlying risk already present. And uh, I think we recommend looking at the other risk factors from there, such as we're getting back to the blood work, uh, looking at the blood sugars, looking at the lipids. I think um, a lot of it really can just be determined with an annual physical, an, an annual wellness check, regardless of your age. On high blood pressure, believe it or not, over almost half of U.S. adults have high blood pressure, yet over a third of those adults with high blood pressure are unaware that they have it. What is considered high blood pressure, Jeff? Like, what is, when, when does it become borderline? When does it become what we would te technically call high blood pressure? According to the most recent uh, paper, released from the American Heart Association, American College of Cardiology, um, the ideal blood pressure is the one that you hear about all the time, uh, 120 over 80 or below. Um, we usually say that people are stage one or uh, borderline if your top number of blood pressure is 120 to 130. Um, 130 to 140 in some patients is acceptable if there's otherwise low risk uh, aside from the blood pressure, um, if you look at it from a backwards uh, view, I usually say we definitely want your blood pressure less than 140 on the top. It would be even better if we could get you below 130. And ideally, you get the most risk factor reduction from a top number of blood pressure at 120 or below. And then what about the bottom number? And is it as important as the top number? I tell people that the older we get, we look less at the bottom number. The diastolic blood pressure, which is the bottom number, is still important. And if it's consistently high, yes, we definitely want to treat that. But the risk of stroke and heart attack as we age is more predictive based on the top number, the systolic blood pressure. I think if you have a younger person, and of course that 
definition shifts as we all age. But I think if you have someone, this is, I'm just making this up, less than 55, less than 50, and their diastolic blood pressures are running high, but their top number blood pressures are normal, that person may need to be treated based on other risk factors, and it's probably someone that definitely should be followed pretty closely. So we're kind of back to the importance of annual physicals and screenings and just staying on top of our health, I think, to a large degree. Um, now, you mentioned heart disease and stroke in the same sentence there. And, you know, stroke is the fifth leading cause of death in America. And the, the combination of stroke and heart attack causes more deaths in the U.S. than all forms of cancer and chronic lower respiratory disease combined, based on recent data. How are stroke and heart disease connected? The risk factors for stroke in general um, are the same. If we're talking about a vascular stroke, in other words, a blockage problem in the cerebrovascular uh, territory, and again, the risk factors, high blood pressure, diabetes, smoking, high cholesterol, and even a family history, sedentary lifestyle, et cetera, those increase the risk of stroke. Now, we could again talk about this too, but uh, the leading rhythm problem that we see in America today that also seems to be almost at epidemic uh, levels is atrial fibrillation, where the top two chambers of the heart quiver instead of contract. And when they don't fully contract, blood can pool in the top two chambers of the heart, the atria. And if you're not on a blood thinner, the the pooling of the blood can form a clot. The clot can break loose and travel upstream to the brain and cause a stroke. That's called an embolic stroke. That means the clot formed somewhere else and then it traveled to the brain. So two broad categories of stroke would be vascular or cerebrovascular event um, or an embolic event. And um, again, but atrial fibrillation is related to, you guessed it, high blood pressure, diabetes, uh, being overweight, sedentary lifestyle, smoking, et cetera. So um, those are the two broad categories of stroke. But as you can see, looking at the risk factors, it's all it's all pretty much connected. So AFib, as many people call that, um, nearly 35% of people with AFib will have a stroke. So does uh, does AFib or atrial fibrillation does that always require surgery? What are the tre- what's the treatment protocol for AFib? Atrial fibrillation. Um, the first thing that we address with atrial fibrillation is treating symptoms, if any, are present and. Um, I will say this, that um, a large percentage of patients who have atrial fibrillation have no symptoms, and that is a sad, frightening thing. Um, it's sad and frightening when someone presents to the hospital with a stroke, and they say, I don't know why I had a stroke, and we say, you have atrial fibrillation. Did you not know that? No, I do not feel anything wrong with my heart. Thankfully, those are not very, very common scenarios, but it's not an uncommon scenario. But atrial fibrillation, first of all, we treat any symptoms that are present. We want to get the heart rate controlled. And then we try to establish uh, whether this person warrants anticoagulation, in other words, being on a blood thinner. And then the third thing is what we call rhythm control. In some patients, 
We do certain procedures, for example, a cardioversion, where we will have anesthesia put you to sleep for about 10 minutes and then shock your heart back into a normal rhythm. You wake up, you're back in a normal rhythm. Sometimes that might have to be repeated. Sometimes we add medications to help with that. Probably a third or fourth step is where one of my electrophysiology colleagues might see you for consideration of an ablation of the focus in the heart that's actually triggering the atrial fibrillation. And then lastly, probably five, six, seven steps down the road. Occasionally for people whose atrial fibrillation we just can't control, we might insert a pacemaker to regulate the heart rate, at least the bottom chambers of the heart um, with a pacemaker. It's Heart Health Month. We're visiting with Dr. Jeff Johnson at University Cardiology. You know, you've mentioned, and, and in our, I'm going to get to especially cholesterol and blood pressure and medication versus life, versus lifestyle and things like that. Um, but I do want to ask you, you've mentioned, you know, obesity, uh, smoking, diabetes. What about alcohol? How, how, how much does alcohol impact heart disease and incidence of stroke? The... Official answer, and I don't think that this has changed from the American College of Cardiology, American Heart Association, is that one alcoholic drink per day probably actually improves your long-term survival. Um, one to two for men and one for women. If I recall, I think that's what the official paper says. Now, um the other thing is, is that over the past just two to three years, I mentioned that atrial fibrillation is epidemic. We've always known that um, larger amounts of alcohol, in other words, beyond one to two drinks per day, um, increases your risk of atrial fibrillation and therefore increases your risk of stroke. The official answer based on some recent data that has come out again over the past couple of years is that even social alcohol slightly increases our risk as adults of developing atrial fibrillation. So um, how do we put all that together? Um, my personal approach is to sit there with um, my patient and lay the data out just as I explained right now and say, I can't make your lifestyle choices for you. I can just give you the very best data. If I'm talking to someone whose atrial fibrillation continues to come back, continues to come back, and continues to bother them, and they ask me, well, what's the medical recommendation? Well, the medical recommendation is no alcohol is the very best answer for you. Whereas if I have someone, and again, this is just anecdotal, but I had an 89-year-old delightful lady in my office the other day who I see mainly just for some high blood pressure, and she asked me if she could still have her glass of wine three or four nights a week. I said, I think that that's just a wonderful, delightful idea. So um, I think it's individualized. Um, the alcohol thing is always a topic of conversation. I'll say you can give a talk around town at, at, at a uh, um, some sort of event, uh, a civic club or something like that, and <laughs> talk about all aspects of heart disease and the risk factors. And when it comes time for Q&A, usually the first question is about alcohol. Well, and I know from talking to you in the past and also with other guests, health, health experts we've had on this show, uh, I know that the thing is, 
you know, when you move above one to two glasses in a day, uh, the, you know, your body, the alcohol goes from, you know, starts becoming highly inflammatory very quickly is kind of what I've always been told. And I do want to ask a question about inflammation before we go to our next break. Um, how much, talk about the impact of inflammation on the heart. Inflammation in the body. Inflammation um, is is potentially the step, uh, understanding and being able to treat inflammation is potentially the step towards solving what I call the holy grail of not just cardiology but medicine, but this whole aspect of plaque rupture that can lead to heart attack and even sudden cardiac death. As we talked about at the beginning of the show, uh, most all of us have plaque buildup in our arteries even as early as our teenage years. We can see that on a CT scan, whether it be a calcium score or just a routine CT scan checking for pneumonia. What we can't tell, even with most sophisticated technology that we have today, is which plaque is prone to rupture. And a ruptured plaque is a sudden event Platelets come and try to repair the damage at the site of the rupture. The platelets clump. That's what forms the clot, and that's what causes the heart attack uh, and, the, again, the sudden event that we've been talking about. A lot of people uh, believe that inflammation in the vessels themselves probably contributes to this. Um, and the problem is we don't have a real good way of uh, treating that um, our current medications, including aspirin and statins, which I'm sure we'll probably talk about uh, before the end of the show, contribute to what we call plaque stabilization and a reduction in inflammation. But again, it's not 100% preventative. Um, I, I still believe that hopefully in my lifetime, um, there will be technology that uh, comes along that helps us identify plaques that are prone to rupture so that we could target, treat those plaques and and prevent that. And again, not not only would it change cardiology, it would change the world um, because of the high instance of these sudden cardiac events that you've already uh, pointed out just in the show today. So inflammation plays a role in the whole atherosclerotic cardiovascular process. Our current medicines, including aspirin and statins probably help reduce inflammation and stabilize the plaque, but it, there's still so much for us to learn where that's concerned. We're visiting with Dr. Jeff Johnson. He's with University Cardiology. When we come back, um, we're going to talk more about lowering cholesterol, lowering blood pressure, nature versus nurture, uh, how effective are medicines. So stay with us. You're listening. We'll also have our dollars and cents segment why is the 60-40 portfolio possibly broken, where you have a 60-40 mix of stock and bond funds? So stay with us. We've got a lot more as you listen to More Living with Jim Brogan here on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. Welcome back to News Talk 98.7's Brogan Financial Studios, where Jim Brogan is coming to you live with important news and advice to help you achieve your dream retirement. Get ready to learn and live. Here's your host, Jim Brogan. Welcome back to More Living with Jim Brogan, where it's all about living the best years of your life your way. You can catch us every Saturday, 9 to 10 a.m., and again from 3 to 4 p.m., right here on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. 
And we're talking about Heart Health Month. Before we get back with our guest, cardiologist Jeff Johnson, it is time for Dollars and Cents. Want to be sure you are getting the most out of your retirement? For all the years of your retirement? That's the primary goal of More Living with Jim Brogan and our Dollars and Cents segment, where we provide you with an important financial tip that will help positively impact the quality of your life in retirement. And now, here's Jim with this week's Dollars and Cents tip. Let's talk about why the 60-40 classic investment portfolio may be broken and may no longer be relevant in today's complex and globally interconnected world. Now, the 60-40 portfolio, that means 60% stocks, 40% bonds. Typically, that's going to look like 60% stock funds, maybe mutual funds and ETFs, maybe a few individual stocks, and 40% bond funds. And normally, that means overwhelmingly U.S. bond funds. And to better understand the 60-40 model and why it need to be why it may be broken, we need to mention briefly modern portfolio theory. Modern portfolio theory was developed in 1952 by Nobel Prize winning economist Harry Markowitz, and he argues that you can risk averse investors can construct portfolios to optimize or maximize expected return based upon a given level of market risk. What does that mean? Investors can reduce risk by diversifying assets and asset allocation in your investment portfolio. So we think of the word diversification. Uh, The way I like to explain diversification is you have a whole bunch of stuff in the portfolio that if one thing zigs, another zags. So they're not correlated. They might sometimes often be negatively correlated. One goes up, the other goes down. They move opposite. So if one one asset fails due to market conditions and goes down substantially, the other asset can either hold its value or rise a little to help compensate for that downturn. Now, the issue is, historically, the 60-40 portfolio stocks and bonds had been negatively correlated. So that means when stocks are up, bonds may be down a little bit. When when stocks are down, bonds may be up. But in the late 2010s, something interesting started to happen to the stock and bond markets. The markets and the economy emerged from the 2008 global financial crisis, but interest rates were kept artificially low by the Federal Reserve. And it wasn't just here. Nations around the world were seeing prolonged low economic growth, and some even had negative interest rates. Financial regulation became very strict. There was a worry that interest rates were to climb back up. And so the result is that stocks continued to rise while bond values rode with them. And then we had a year like 2022 where stock and bonds were both down double digits. Uh, over the last four or five years, the, the diversification of the stock bond portfolio has simply not delivered. The, the idea is you're trying to reduce risk, and with that volatility, and it has not produced that result of a risk-adjusted positive return. And so that means you probably need a greater level of diversification. You need more things in your portfolio that zig and zag. Maybe that means things like energy and natural resources and commodities. Uh, could mean precious metals, not a big mix, 
just a hedge. Hedge is a good word to think of diversification. You have little hedges in the portfolio. When you add more of that, it does mean that in a substantial market downturn, you would expect to hopefully lose less money. That also means that in a market boom, you're probably going to make less money. How long has it been since you evaluated the risk in your portfolio and your current diversification? Make sure you're looking at that. If it's been a while, make sure you evaluate your current level of risk and diversification. I'd like to invite you. I've got my next college class is at Pellissippi State Community College, Thrive Financially in Retirement. And it is on, it is coming up this Tuesday, February 27th. It's a two-part class. So it's February 27th and March the 5th. Again, Pellissippi State at Hardin Valley. You can go to PellissippiRetirementPlanning.com for more information. 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. both nights. You can put, download a full syllabus and click to register. October, or October, February is Heart Health Month, and we're visiting with Dr. Jeff Johnson, great friend of the show, great friend of myself and my wife, Dee Dee. Um, Jeff, let's talk a little bit. High cholesterol, how can people reduce, can, can we reduce it naturally, and when do we consider a statin? And I know statins are kind of controversial. Give us your thoughts on statin drugs. Well, first of all, we've talked already in the show about lifestyle modification, exercise, even 5 to 10 pounds of weight loss, um, changing just a small amount of your dietary intake can make significant changes in your lipid profile and in your blood sugar. I almost always mention the blood sugar at the same time because of, the, again, the epidemic proportion of uh, diabetes to, in our population today. But lifestyle modifications is always the first step that uh, healthcare providers should recommend because, again, it makes a difference um, in your lipid panel and it makes a difference in your uh, uh, blood sugar. Now, when it comes to the statins, we have to define something. And again, based on what we were talking about earlier, CT scanning, seeing incidentally noted uh, calcification in the coronary arteries, but we still define primary prevention and secondary prevention as follows. Primary prevention is you've never had a cardiac event. You've not had a heart attack. You've not had bypass. You've not had stents. You've not been diagnosed with a significant problem with your coronary arteries. Secondary prevention is you've had those things. You've had a heart attack, a um, Died, I'm sorry, you've had a heart attack, you've had a stent, you've had bypass, you have Some now sort of been treated inter interventionally uh, in your coronary arteries. So primary prevention, people talk about when are statins indicated in primary prevention. I think a lot of it would depend on the numbers and the family history and um, other things that we consider, whereas the numbers become less important in regards to the recommendation for the therapy with secondary prevention. In other words, once we cross into secondary prevention, the statins unequivocally are indicated because of a 25% reduction across the board in heart attack, stroke, and death. The numbers still guide us as to how aggressive we should be with our treatment, 
But then when we shift back to primary prevention, we talk about lifestyle modification. People will sometimes say, well, I want to take this supplement that maybe has been shown to lower cholesterol. I will say, um, I don't have a problem with that. I'm not an anti-supplement person myself. However, we're talking about primary prevention, uh, and your supplement does not uh, have proven mortality benefits when we talk about secondary prevention. So that's a discussion to have with each individual patient. Um, And we can talk about broad numbers that warrant therapy, uh, but that's kind of the approach. I like to divide people into the groups. Are we talking about primary prevention or are we talking about secondary prevention? That's maybe is. Easily explained as I've ever heard that explanation, and that's one of the things I love about having Jeff on, and and is not only is he uh, very passionate about caring for his patients, he always is very good at breaking things down and explaining to us in a way we can understand. When we come back, I want to, you know, we mentioned diabetes a lot, and I want to talk about some of these weight loss the drugs that were developed, these shots, as diabetes drugs and that are now being prescribed and approved by the FDA for weight loss. I want to get Jeff's opinion on those, and we'll talk about other lifestyle factors. So stay with us. We're visiting with Dr. Jeff Johnson of University Cardiology as you listen to More Living with Jim Brogan, only on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. Welcome back to News Talk 98.7's Brogan Financial Studios, where Jim Brogan is coming to you live with important news and advice to help you achieve your dream retirement. Get ready to learn and live. Here's your host, Jim Brogan. This is More Living here on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. Thanks for tuning in this morning. Would you like to thrive financially in retirement? Pellissippi State is conducting their two-part adult education class, Thrive Financially in Retirement, on February the 27th and March the 5th. That's the next, this coming Tuesday. Two two-hour sessions, 6.30 p.m. I will be the instructor. We'd love to see you there as we talk about seven key areas I think every retiree or soon-to-be retiree needs to address in their plan. Go to PellissippiRetirementPlanning.com for more information. Jeff Johnson, cardiologist at University Cardiology, as we're talking about Heart Health Month, always been great with his time and generous in, in speaking with us. You know, we talked about we talked about high blood pressure, Jeff. You've talked a lot about type two diabetes, certainly coronary artery disease, a lot about obesity. There are these few new drugs on the market that are used for treating diabetes, but they are now also approved for weight loss. What is your thought on these drugs, long-term effects. I know they haven't really been used long-term. There doesn't seem to be much concern in the medical community, at least with those that I've talked to and, and even people on this show. What do you think? What, what, are you, what is your opinion of these? Well, in the last few minutes of our time, I was going to mention um, it really is an exciting time. I feel like maybe some of the discussion earlier, and I don't mean for it to be this way, is gloom and doom, you know, we're obese, we have type 2 diabetes, we've got uh, ever-increasing amounts of heart disease, but there are exciting, exciting therapies that are out there. First of all, for lipids, uh, we we don't probably have the time to delve completely into the statin discussion, but uh, for those people who can't tolerate a statin or don't want to take a statin, there are new alternatives coming, and it's probably the hottest area of development in cardiology uh, in regards to long-term therapies to help 
treat atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. The other hottest area of development is the GLP-1 agonist drugs that you have been talking about uh, in regards to weight loss. Now, the uh, I I smiled when um, you can't see me, but uh, I smiled when you said the medical community has not been very concerned about these. It's because they they continue to just check all the boxes. Uh, even in the early studies, the SELECT trial was probably the most talked about cardiovascular trial in the last year. It showed that GLP-1 agonists not only contribute to weight loss, but they actually improve mortality in patients who do not have diabetes. And by very sophisticated statistical analysis, they looked at the amount of mortality benefit, extrapolated the amount that you would normally get from just losing 10% of your body weight, for example, or 20% of your body weight, for example, and they found that the drugs actually improved your survival benefit beyond just the weight loss. And this is now in patients with known atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. So let me say it just the other way. If you have known heart disease and you have a classification of being overweight or obese, even if you don't yet have type 2 diabetes, these medicines show, A, that they help you lose weight, but, B, they help you live longer beyond what would be expected from just the amount of weight loss that you would get. So that's why doctors are so excited and the population is so excited about these medicines. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I thought you were probably going to say something like that, but I'll, I'll never forget. It's, it's, I don't know how long it's been, a year, maybe not quite a year. The first time I asked a doctor on this show, um, I didn't know what kind of answer I would get. And then since then, subsequently, every doctor I've asked, either on this show or even in my personal life, but, you know, friends that I have like yourself seem to be very encouraged by it. I do, I do want to mention, you know, obesity. I think through all this, you see a lot more about obesity. Certainly there are lifestyle factors with obesity, but it can be a clinical diagnosis that needs help. I mean, can you just comment on that a little bit? Because sometimes we use the word obesity and it feels so shaming. So I'd like your perspective on that. You are so correct. I, um, yeah, um, I, I, I have to be careful. I believe in a healthy diet, for example. I believe in trying to be mindful of our dietary intake. Um, to try to eat uh, healthy foods versus the unhealthy foods. And someone actually asked me yesterday uh, in the hospital, well, what's unhealthy? And I said, you know, I think that most of us know when we're eating something unhealthy. Um, and he that's said, well, point. yeah, I guess, I, I, I guess that's right. But all that being said, we all know people, too, who are genetically engineered, the proverbial skinny as a rail and can eat whatever he or she wants. Um the flip side has to be true also. I can't tell you the number of times that my heart has gone out to someone who is very distraught and disturbed about their weight, and they insist that they do not eat that much. They do not overeat. They try to be mindful of their caloric intake, and I absolutely believe them. I do believe that just like there's a genetic predisposition for some people not to have issues with their weight, there's a genetic predisposition 
for those people to have issues with their weight. But again, these medicines can be helpful and beneficial. So again, a lot of exciting things in the medical community to deal with all of these things. Dr. Jeff Johnson, University Cardiology, Heart Health Month, thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy schedule. It's always a pleasure. I love being here, Jim. You do a great job. Thank you, sir. That's Dr. Jeff Johnson. He's with University Cardiology. We've discussed heart health because greater health provides for more living so you can live the best years of your life your way. Many thanks to Jennifer for engineering the show. Thanks to Jill for helping produce the show. Have a very blessed weekend. You've been listening to More Living with Jim Brogan right here on News Talk 98.7 WOKI.